Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 to 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Uh, it's good to start without tripping over the stage today. Great to be with you all. My name is Howard. It's my privilege to be preaching this next installment from Walk in Love, this great series that we are going through. Great Bible reading there from Emily. If you don't know, that's our new member of staff. Uh, our administrator is doing a fantastic job in these first few weeks already. And I wanted to start with a question for you. It's the kind of question I'm sure you get asked all the time. It's this, are you dating a man-child? I'm teasing you. <laughs> That's from an article that I read in preparation for this message. It's from Psychology Today. And it's designed to protect women from going out, building a relationship with a man who's not really grown up and just wants another mum in his life, someone to pay the bills, cook his meals, do the laundry whilst he gets to do whatever he likes with his life, like play computer games all day, I, I don't know, or whatever that kind of thing. It's actually taken to an extreme level It's even got a psychological term. It's called paraphilic infantilism. And there's a man, he's 31 years old. He's called Stanley Thornton. And he has chosen to continue to live as if he is a baby, being spoon-fed food and things like that. Uh, it's, It's really embarrassing that he's tragically stuck in this stage of immaturity. We might have a slide somewhere on that one, I don't know. Um, But there he is, he's out there, 31-year-old man who's continuing to live as a baby because he feels like he lost out on his childhood and feels it brings him a sense of safety. How tragic, how tragic to be eating baby food when you could be having a Chinese buffet. So... Awful. And why am I saying this? I'm saying this to set the scene for this passage because I think there are parallels to not growing up, staying in immaturity in the Christian life and in in the church. And that's how Paul introduces this section. Verse 14, if we backtrack, I am drilling into particularly to verses 15 and 16 today. But in verse 14, Paul has a so that statement. Whenever you read so that in the Bible, just, just take note. Important words, that's a purpose statement. So that we may no longer be children. 
The goal is that, is that we would grow up and break through from immaturity and continually growing more mature. What's really interesting about that statement as well is Paul says, we, not you, not you lot. I've arrived. I'm the great apostle who's planted and founded churches. He's seen hundreds of thousands come to faith. He's healed the sick. You know, no, he's saying we, 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 we're all in the same boat. We're all on a journey towards maturity. You see, the Christian faith, is, it's, it's a humble faith. It's not arrogant as some people would like you to think it is. And so Paul is writing this. God is speaking to you today to help you break through from immaturity into maturity. That's really important to get maybe unstuck if you got stuck at a particular age of development to help you get through but also to protect you from becoming a plaything of what it says here human cunning on the one hand and satanic schemes on the other you'll see that more clearly in the English standard version which is more of a literal word for word but here are the dangers of human cunning and deception and deceitful schemes now these deceitful schemes the word there in chapter 4 verse 14 matches chapter 6 verse 11 and there are the schemes Schemes of Satan that we're to be on the lookout for. Now, bear with us. Come back later. If you've got questions about the devil and Satan, we'll, we'll work through that later in the series when we get to chapter 6. But for now, I want you to think about why this passage is important and why you should really listen to it. It's so that you can get unstuck. It's to prevent you from getting stuck in the future. It's so you can help other people get unstuck. It's for all of us who feel like we're languishing at the moment. Maybe through this whole season of COVID, you feel like you've lost a sense of pu purpose and you stop really making progress in your Christian life. There's some great truths for all of us to help us on our way in these verses. And I'm going to give you just four words, four words today, four points to help us. The first of those words is the word rather, rather sometimes translated instead and I've got a question with that, are you seeing the wind? It'll make more sense in a moment. But this word rather or instead, it's a contrast to what's just gone before, what Paul is writing about. He's saying, don't be like that. Do something different to what I've just written about. What has he just said? He's describing Christians being tossed to and fro by the winds of doctrine. This deceptive, dangerous doctrine. And they're, they're pushed all over the place by the, these winds that are blowing. I wonder if you have ever been in a boat in a storm. Do you know what that's like? There's a few people nodding. Um, I have. Um, this picture sort of illustrates that. Um, I used to sail, I used to race optimist boats. These are really small boats. Basically, it's the size of a bathtub with a sail in it. And I used to do that And reservoirs. Some of them so big, like Datchet, you can barely see the side of them. And when the wind gets up, this day was like that, like this picture. It's gale force winds are blowing. So it's like the sea. You've got waves on this reservoir. And it was so strong, the wind, that people's boats were breaking. Their spit holding the sail out, their, their, their centerboard, their, their tiller, the rudder, were breaking, falling off under the sheer power of the wind which left them really vulnerable. So they were just drifting, drifting like that, like a cork being tossed in the sea. Thankfully, my boat didn't break that day. 
I tell you what happened. I was sailing with this incredibly strong wind. And when the wind is behind you, you have your sail flat out like that. And the wind coming from behind you, you're on what's called a run. Like that. And it's a bit of a vulnerable position for a boat because all the force is pushing the boat down that way. And you're kind of waiting it at the back, kind of flying along in a wind like that. But I was coming up to tack at a buoy to go round it, having to pull the sail in a little bit. And then the wind did what? You can't trust the wind. It changed direction quite suddenly on me. Oh, sorry. I'm got some feedback but it changed direction suddenly on me got behind the sail and flipped the entire boat over it's absolutely terrifying you can imagine black skies wind blowing waves and I found myself literally trapped underneath the bottom of this little bathtub in the middle of this reservoir it's terrifying there's a parallel to that the winds of doctrine or teaching are extremely dangerous extremely dangerous. What are these winds of doctrine? Well they are secular ideologies, rival philosophies, false religions, these teachings that are out there and they're blowing against you all of the time, all of the time, coming against you. I wonder can you feel the wind? Can you feel this wind? One of the issues we have is that sometimes we just don't feel the wind blowing on us. And this is an unbelievably clever strategy, particularly of, of Satan, so that you wouldn't even believe that he exists to know what's going on because he can operate so much more effectively when you don't think that he's even there doing anything. Which is a great picture of what wind is like, isn't it? Wind, by definition, it's invisible. You can't see it. You can only see its impact. Are you sensing the wind in our nation? Have you noticed the way that the wind has been changing? There was a time when we Christians were considered to be odd, a bit weird, naive, silly. It's the God squad at university again. Oh, them. That's how we were thought of. Now they think we're wrong. Even more than that, they think we're dangerous. On our issues, our views about sexuality, for example. So we must be silenced. We're not allowed to speak. We'll be criminalized if we do so. See, have you noticed the way these winds are changing? We're being bombarded by these winds all the time as well. In an excellent must-read book by a guy called Stephen McAlpine, books called Being the Bad Guys, he describes this really, really well. He says, all of us are immersed in a highly effective discipleship program offered by our culture Monday through Saturday. In everything from our phones to Netflix to advertising and news items, we are being offered a discipleship program that invites us to a completely different way of life, mediated to us through a dazzling array of images, sounds, stories, and suggestions. So what do we do? Pull up the drawbridge, batten down the hatches, close the doors, shut yourself off, and let's just join together in this holy, happy little Christian community and huddle up for safety until Jesus returns. No. <laughs> no, that's not what Joseph did, right? He was in Egypt. That's not what Daniel did in Babylon. That's not what Esther did in Persia. That's not what Peter did in Rome. That's not what Paul did in Athens at the Areopagus. None of that happened. 
No, rather instead. Rather instead, we are to speak the truth in love to one another to protect ourselves from the culture around us, from worldly deceptions and cheap imitations. We're to speak the truth to protect us, to protect you from believing a variation of Christianity, a variant, dangerous version of Christianity, of the Christian faith but without sacrifice. Where you get Easter Sunday, but you try and get that without Good Friday. It's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer would have called cheap grace. And you protect yourself from falling for the secular world's view of going after all the benefits of the kingdom. Thinking you can get all of the stuff of the good life of the Christian faith, but... Whilst you're enthroning yourself as its king. Without Jesus as king. And by speaking the truth in love, we protect ourselves from a great danger of misunderstanding the very nature of truth itself. Here's the second point, the second word, truth. Are you speaking and living it to others? One of the big challenges of our culture is that we have relativized truth. There's a great illustration of this. comes from the magazine The Week, which sums up the news. great little cartoon here of somebody being sworn in to give evidence and saying, I promise to tell my truth, my whole truth, and nothing but my truth. This idea, this my truth, a little truth. Sorry, I'm hoping we can, we can sort this out. I'm sure the team are on it. Um, Working a solution to the feedback. Um, but this idea, this little t truth, um, this, this subjective notion of truth is small, it's weak. It means that it's not true for everybody everywhere. It's not capital T true. Here we go. It's a bit awkward when you kind of hear all this feedback and crackling. Um, there we go. I'm not sure what I'll do with this bit now. Hey. Okay, so little t truth. So we've got this little t truth, and then we have. I'm just going to totally take that off. There we go. We've got little t truth, my truth. It's small truth. It's true for me, personal, subjective. It's not capital T truth, which is true for everyone, everywhere, all the time, unchanging, absolute, certain, fixed, solid. That is what the Christian faith truth is. And so, by definition, everything that is true truth. All that opposes that must be false. Everything. And so Paul is really keen here to make sure that we're building our lives on the right truth. So how does he do that? He goes then, doesn't he, and he teaches his one dangerous deception. Let me explain that to you. Here's another dangerous deception. Let me explain that to you. Here's another dangerous deception. Let me explain that to you. No, he doesn't do that at all. Why? Because he's already set out three glorious chapters of truth. Ephesians chapter 1 to 3. And he's saying, learn that. Get that into your life. Speak this truth into each other's hearts that you would really know this truth. It's said when they're teaching people how to spot counterfeit money and fakes, when they train those people, they don't show them all the fakes so they can know what to look out for. They actually teach them to really, really know the real truth thing and when you know the real thing it's very easy to spot that which isn't like it 
And that's what we need to do to each other as the church. To be speaking the truth in love. This phrase, speaking the truth, in the original Greek is actually only one word, not three words. And it means truthing truthing in love not just words but but by our very actions in our lives we are truthing in love how do you do that how do we go about that well let's try and put some flesh on the bones of what that might look like maybe you know someone and they feel unwanted and worthless well you can say to them no if you've believed in christ you were chosen by God before the foundation of the world. You're getting the truth into them. Maybe they feel rejected. You can say, no, you are adopted by God, brought into his family. Maybe they feel dirty. You can say, no, you've been redeemed by our good God. Maybe they feel weak, struggling, lacking power. You say, no, the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead runs through your veins no matter how weak you feel this is true maybe they feel unimportant lacking in purpose you know you're part of the church we have this high calling the greatest purpose on earth for any human being to have is to serve the purpose of God in our generation to be part of his church family this is how we start to speak the truth in love to one another that we would so live and know this truth that we wouldn't want to turn astray to anything less to any false truths that are out there any any false loves any temptations from the world we, we wouldn't be deceived by any of that we're to speak the truth in love to one another sometimes that means we might have to say some tough things to those who trust us. Did you hear the latter part of that? It's really important to those who trust us. But we would never do that judgmentally. Paul has been teaching that we are to walk in a manner worthy of what Christ has done and of the high calling of the church with all humility he's embodying that we saw that in the we rather than the you and that leads into the third point of love love have you lost that loving feeling love must be the attitude by which we speak the truth in love but actually truthing one another is in itself an act of love in love is a phrase that comes six times in this letter called Ephesians alone. And it begins this section in verse 2 in love and it finishes it at the end in verse 16 in love. And in this sense it's what's called an inclusio or an envelope. It's the bookends, the beginning and end of this section before Paul moves into a different section in verse 17 so we understand that everything is to be infused with love. Love begins, it ends, it's all full of love. Love is essential, the essential ingredient in the Christian life. Truth on its own is harsh. It's angular. It's judgmental. It's, it's nasty. It's blunt. It's sometimes rude. Love on its own is sentimental and soppy and empty, meaningless even. And God wants us to fuse the two to come together, that we would express his love for one another as we are truthing one another in love. But to do that, you have to really know people. 
have to know them so well that you're aware of the particular truth that that person needs at this particular moment and you know how to say it to them in a way that they will receive it. To know people that well requires trust, which requires vulnerability. And that needs our feet to be secure in the solid love of God so that we can trust and be vulnerable with one another. Now that sense of love and safety and trust comes as we are truthing one another in love, of course, but it also comes from being plugged into Jesus. And I'll get to that shortly in the final point. The whole of the Christian faith can be summed up in two simple commands. Love God, love others. Number one, love God. Number two, love others. We've heard that very often. But what I think we hear less often today is that how well you are doing with loving God, number one, is revealed by how well you are doing, number two, loving others. I've been reading through this book, um, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, by a man called Pete Scazzaro. And he comes to a chapter about the the mark make love the measure of maturity. And he writes this, that he's been a Christian for 17 years in ministry for many of those years as well. And he says, I don't remember anyone ever teaching me that loving people well was the defining characteristic of a mature Christian. Not how well you read your Bible, not how well you pray. Those things matter, of course. But how well you love other people. Love is absolutely essential. Paul put it another way when he was writing to the church in Corinth in the first century and he was encouraging them to have the right use of their spiritual gifts. Now you can think of these spiritual gifts, prophecies, tongues, administration, helps as truthing tools to help us get the truth in love to one another. And he lays it out in three chapters, chapters 12 to 14 of 1 Corinthians. But it forms like a sandwich because his explanation of the gifts in chapter 12 and then in chapter 14, right in the middle, is an, is an ode to love. It is an explanation in detail about the nature and characteristics of, of what love is like because he's saying these are ministrations of love and love is essential to them. This is how Eugene Peterson expresses it in the message paraphrase. If I speak with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy but don't love, I'm nothing but the creaking of a rusty gate. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all his mysteries and making everything as plain as day, and if I have faith that says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I don't love, I am nothing. If I give everything I own to the poor and even to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, what I believe and what I do, I am bankrupt without love. Have you lost that loving feeling? It could be because you've lost sight of the cross. You've stopped seeing Jesus, God, dying for you 
in your place, taking your sins and the punishment that you deserve for the wrong things you've said, thought and done and the good you should have done but you, you didn't do. And doing it all as an expression of love. That you would go free. That you would be forgiven. If you lose sight of that, you'll stop experiencing love. That's one way. The other way is that you've disconnected yourself from a local church. And in doing so, maybe this has happened through our online times of COVID for you. But you've stopped experiencing the truthing in love ministry of the local body of Christ in the way that you need it. And also, you stopped experiencing knowing that love by giving out. By yourself becoming an agent to speak the truth in love to others. You've stopped having opportunity uh, to do that. And so you've stopped knowing the love of God in this deeper way. God wants to make this love, his love, known to the world. And so he defines it, he describes it for us here. I want to lead us into a moment of confession of sin, because this can often be a way where we stop experiencing the love of God. Paul says that love is patient. Have you been lately? Or impatient? Rushing. Love is kind. You've been kind or unkind. Love does not envy. Have you been comparing yourself with others in social media and feeds, thinking, oh, I feel better than this person because look at them, or I feel worse because this person's doing this? Love doesn't envy. Love isn't arrogant. How is your pride? Love doesn't just seek to get its own way all of the time. How about you? Have you you've been trying to do that? Love isn't resentful. Are you holding on to grudges? I'm just going to take a moment now for the presence of God to come and for you to search your heart and to let God search your heart to see if there is any unclean way in it. Any unlovingness present. And we do this in confidence that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and he will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, we confess this day and this week we have been unloving. Forgive us and put your love afresh into each of our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. If you know you need more time to do business with God, please request prayer now or later on in this service. I want to move us on just to flesh out though. God's heart and desire is that the world would taste his love through us, through the quality of love that we have for one another that then overflows to the world around us. Let me put it this way. Um, Holly, my wife, every now and again, she bakes my favorite cake. It is wonderful. But 
it's not really a looker. She'd be the first to admit that. It doesn't look like it's going to taste as, as great as it actually does. So I could show you a picture of it right now and I could list the ingredients, but I don't think that would persuade you to eat it. What I could do instead is I could actually take a little bit and eat it right in front of you and you would see just like from the expression on my face the sheer joy and delight coming as it feels like I'm tasting the sweetness of heaven itself and wow, look what's happening to Howard. I want some of that cake. But the best thing of all, of course, is that you would come and taste this cake for yourself. And that's what God wants of his church of his church for us. He wants us to grow up, to love up, and to love up in order to grow up. And we're a good church here at Westminster Chapel. I'm obviously biased. I think we're really good in so, so many ways here. But there's more. There's more that God wants us to experience and to enjoy in him and of love amongst us. And everybody has a part to play in that. Everyone matters. Yes, there are these Ephesians 4 gifts that we heard about so brilliantly from Guy last week. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds and teachers, or shepherds hyphen teachers if you want to be pedantic about it. They're the ligaments, the channels of blessing the scriptures describe that flow through a body, that sustain life to it and connect it together. But it's essential that every part also does its work, that every part is working properly, that every part in the body of Christ sees the role, the value that they have to play in the body of Christ, doesn't think I'm unimportant, I'm overlooked, I don't matter, you need to hear today, it's not just me saying it, I think it's God, you matter, you are vital, you're essential to the life of the church and to the mission of church in the world. I'll tell you a story to illustrate this. There was a time when I was riding my bike into church. It took about seven miles and there were moments on this journey that became more and more frequent over time where I would be pedaling away on my bike, often at very dangerous moments, like I'm in the middle of a box junction trying to get through it and I find I'm pedaling away but the wheel isn't turning. I'm absolutely stuck. Now, my gears were great. My frame was solid. My brakes were sound. All these other parts of my bike were working seemingly really well, but I wasn't going anywhere because of this tiny little part here called the free hub. Really small. If I'm honest, I didn't even know it existed until I found out it was broken. Isn't that a picture potentially of the church? That there are certain parts that seem so small and insignificant but are absolutely vital and precious if we are to see all that God wants to do amongst us. Everybody matters. Everybody matters. But how do we create a culture where... Everybody senses they matter and they're making progress in their walk with God. They're discovering their calling, their fit, their identity, their gifts and so forth. Well, that comes through speaking the truth in love to one another, doesn't it? Truthing one another in love, building one another up. But it also comes from being plugged into Jesus. And this is my final point. Christ. Is he your leader and source? 
the language of the scripture here is that Christ is the head who we are to grow up into. Head, authority. It says earlier in Ephesians that he is the head of the church. Are you embracing his loving leadership? Are you fully surrendered to Christ or are you fighting for him, fighting for control against him in certain areas of your life? Are you submitting to the will of Christ in the same way that Jesus submitted to the will of the Father? You think of Gethsemane where he prays, not my will. But your will be done. Or you think of the Lord's prayer. Our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Not my will. Your, your will. Are you letting Jesus be the leader of your life? Are you trying to lead? That's the first part here. The second part is that Jesus is also the source. It says from whom. From whom? Jesus is the life giver, the energizer, the strength giver, the sustainer, the one who enables the church to function. He's our source of life and energy, so we must be plugged into him. But if we're trying to operate still in our own strength, we won't know his strength flowing through us. That's what happened to me when I was cycling. I was pedaling. I think my legs might have been going in that moment faster than anybody else's legs in the world to get to the other side of that junction so I would be safe. And I was giving it every bit of effort and energy that I possibly could to move that bike through, through pedaling my legs, but it didn't go anywhere. Because none of that energy was connected in through the free hub to the back wheel. I didn't move a single inch. And that can be a picture of our Christian lives. And we think we know better than God. We try things in our own strength and we, we, we do it all on our own. Jesus put it like this in John chapter 15. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. To abide is to remain, to stay, to be with, to be near, to be connected, to be plugged in. Is that you? Are you stopping to be still, to be with Jesus? Or is your life about doing things for Jesus? Being must come before doing. When you spend time with Jesus, this quiet time, as we call it, is it primarily just all about your noise? You unburdening, you talking, you saying what you need, you getting your stuff off your chest, you casting your cares upon Christ. That is all legitimate, but if that's all that you're doing, you're not really being with him. You're not stopping to really listen and hear his voice. You're meeting with him on your terms, not his. I think there's a season that God has been teaching us through COVID to be still. And to know him.
intimately and deeply. And as we do this, we should make sure we don't sense condemnation. Maybe you have struggled, maybe you have lost your way, but there's liberation. Jesus' words to us are, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's gentle and lowly, he's full of grace and truth to bring freedom and healing. And when we do this, when we come into to closer fellowship with Jesus and with one another, there's unity that's being built because we're being conforming, growing up into the same image. It's Christ we're growing into, the same for all of us, and he's the same source, so we're growing closer. So as we draw closer to Christ, we draw closer together, we express a greater unity, and we start to reveal Christ more easily to the world by our oneness and our love for one another. Jesus says, they'll know you're my disciples. People have been looking for the secret source of church growth for like hundreds and hundreds of years. And they come up with all sorts of ideas. It's about recovering this particular doctrine. Like baptism in water, baptism in the Holy Spirit. That, that's the secret. You get that right, churches will grow. Or it's about this style of worship or this method of evangelism or, or witnessing or discipleship. People have tried all these different things and it's been in plain sight for all these years. Here is the secret to church growth. Loving one another with the love that he gives us that would then overflow to the world. All of the problems in our society right now, potential war in the Middle East, Israel, Palestine, Gaza, the problems and challenges of COVID, hundreds of thousands of people dying, all the problems in our society, I tell you, they're not primarily, not primarily solved through education, through finance, through business, through politics, through charities, through social justice organizations, important as they are. No, they will all, all primarily, ultimately can be solved through the church. Only the church through divine love being made manifest in the body that overflows to the world around us. So let's not be, tired, be, blossed, be tossed to and fro by the wind of secular culture and human cunning and satanic scheming. But instead, let's be speaking the truth in love to each other every day in every possible way we can think of, that we would build one another up, that we would build up the church, and the church body would grow. And if we do that, wow, hundreds, thousands of people will come to know Christ. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you are good, that you are God, that you're full of love. We thank you for your presence already here in this service, Lord. Cleanse our hearts from the ways that we've been unloving. Protect us from the winds of dark, deceptive doctrine by grounding us in the truth of your word, 
in the love that comes from you and in that love being made manifest through us. This very day I pray that you'd help each one of us to be able to truth another Christian in love. Help us, Lord, to build one another up that your church body would grow stronger, would grow deeper, that we might go wider for your glory. Come, help us to respond and worship you in adoration and thanks to who you are and all that you've done. listening to sermon audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.